Hey everyone, uh, don't be alarmed, this is a Shane week as advertised, but because I'm editing the episode, Shane asked me to jump in first to let you know that he refers throughout his talk to uh, a rope. Um, I just posted a photo of that rope on the Facebook group so that you can see it, but it's a a rope with lots of different strands that come in and come out and things tied into it. Uh, that will all make sense once you listen to the podcast episode. But it, yeah, it might be a bit confusing without realising exactly what he's referring to. Hope you're all well and back to Shane. Um, I am Shane and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm lucky enough to be one of the people who gets to be here all the time and help care for this community. Um, yeah. We are doing a series called Prophets and Poets that was, we've kind of been toying with it for a while, but it was kind of sparked into action by the Sinead O'Connor documentary. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Um, needs a few trigger warnings because it's pretty full on, but it's a beautiful piece of work about a complicated soul um, who found herself standing up for justice in uh, ways that really cost her and with great bravery. Um, yeah, and we were really inspired by that because that is in our tradition. Uh, we are talking today, we're going to get to some like, I mean this is, don't want to like put a downer on today. It's going to be fun, but there's some like way more fun and interesting stuff coming. But we're going to try and like lay a bit of groundwork for it. Um, but today we're talking about biblical prophets, and primarily we're talking about Hebrew prophets, because prophets in the New Testament <laughs> is another whole complicated beast. But um, what do you think of when you think of biblical prophets? What words or images come to mind? The hair, yeah, big hair. So if we are looking for candidates for modern-day ancient times Hebrew prophets here today, we have a few candidates. Okay, big hair, yep. Yeah, been inspired, excellent. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Anything else other than big hair? Yeah, speaking to people who didn't want to hear them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, weird and outside society. Yeah, yeah. Usually men. Yeah, yeah. They often get murdered. Yeah, yeah. True story. Yeah, performative, yeah, laying down on your side for three years and then rolling over, eating locusts and honey. This is John the Baptist. I always like to find, like, children's Bible story, uh, white Jesus versions of things, because um, it's kind of fun. And um, this, is, this is John the Baptist from some obscure children's Bible. Uh, this is currently with head, before head is removed, so just in case you were taking notes. Um, there were a few of the other, but I thought today is not the day. Anything else you think of when you think of biblical prophets? Yeah, they seem to be tortured souls. That's a really good description. They seem to be tortured souls. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to roll really quickly through a kind of bit of a framework for prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Um, this is uh, from the Bible Project, which is a reasonably good um, resource <laughs> that hit and miss sometimes, but um, has, some, re- has some, some really helpful stuff, um, but good at explaining academic things in non-academic terms. So this is their um, description of a Hebrew prophet. Um, they're a person who has an encounter, um, some kind of transcendent moment, um, some kind of manic vision, some kind of experience which overwhelms them, some kind of thing which they interpret as an um, experience of the divine. They then represented God to God's people as a response to this encounter. Um, Robert Alter, who's a Hebrew Bible scholar who I really like, um, calls prophets the conscience of the people. Um, they're the people who say, hey, you've, for- you've forgotten something. Um, they hold up a mirror, and in the context of Israel, they hold up a mirror to the nation of Israel and say, um, this is what you look like. Uh, is it what you were supposed to look like? Um, their, prophets, uh, um, their prophets' focus is uh, covenant, which is mutual partnership between God and the Israelites. They call Israel back to its mission to represent God, be a nation of priests, and they're supposed to be representing God's love and generosity to the other nations and upholding the law. So when the prophets have an encounter where they feel that God is saying or the divine is saying that they aren't fulfilling their duty, the prophets are there to remind um, the people of what they were supposed to be in case they get distracted. Uh, at times they confront leaders, priests and kings who have led Israel astray and have not represented God's love well or have broken the covenant. They speak truth to power. So an example of this is when David, um, uh, with David and Bathsheba, uh, trigger warning, just talking about sexual assault here, um, but when David rapes Bathsheba um, and has her husband uh, murdered, sends him to the front lines where he's definitely going to get killed, the prophet Nathan um, confronts David with a parable and basically traps David and says, um, tells him a story about an unjust circumstance and asks David to judge, King David to judge wisely, which King David does, and then says, aha, the person in that story is you, and you have done that. Um, so this is a person who is, I mean, Nathan was kind of part of the system, part of the court, but an outsider to it, whose job it is to kind of like speak truth to power and hold power accountable. Um, So often prophets are outside the group calling attention to what's happening inside of it. Okay, so that's your little kind of quick fire on Hebrew prophets. But it ties into a way of thinking about religious traditions. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So give me a second. I promised you a sermon prop, which never happens. So here it is. For lots of us who have grown up um, in religious traditions, this is kind of how they get described to us. Ta-da! It's a religious tradition. It's very simple. It's very clear. Right from the start to the very end, it's always the same. So your job is to be faithful 
to this religious tradition because it is unchanging. See this point that we're at here? It's always been exactly like that. So don't change it, and please don't make it complicated. Did anyone grow up in a form of spirituality that was represented to them like that? This is fidelity. This is faithfulness. I know you want to change things. It's only because you want to have sex with lots of people. So don't. It's always been exactly like this. So the longer I have studied Christian tradition and other spiritualities, this is how I think about religious traditions, what they, how they actually function. It's something like this. And the call throughout the Bible is faithfulness. It's faithfulness to God. It's faithfulness to our tradition. It's faithfulness to spirituality. Um, the problem is, is that our traditions are made of many chords. I would argue that at the center of them, there are really central threads without which it stops becoming the religious tradition at all. So in the Christian tradition, it might be the presence of the divine in the world, or it might be that God is love. For some people, it might be Jesus' divinity. There are threads in the center which hold a religious tradition together, but are built around with a whole bunch of other things. Now, in the spirituality I would have grown up with, I would have been told that all of this is a waste of space and we, all we really have is this one thing here. But I don't really think we can function like that. I think how we express our beliefs, how we sit with them, how we hold them, we're always building stuff around the things that sit at the center for us to make sense of them, to show us how to live them out, to show us how to enact them. Uh, what I think prophets' jobs are is to tell us which threads need attention. So if our spirituality is made up of all of these threads, of things that we think are matter, things that we think matter, things that sit at the center of our spirituality, ways of understanding how we're supposed to respond to the really important threads that go through the center, there are times where prophets are needed to say, hey, see that thread there? It's broken and it needs to be attached. See that thread there? It's frayed and we're going to lose it and it really matters. See that thread there? It's causing harm. It shouldn't be a part of our tradition. We need to sever that thread. 
see this thread here? It's held us for this long. It's contained truth. But as our context has changed, we need to think about it differently and reattach a new thread, a better thread, which carries on the spirit of that thread, but adds some nuance so that the way it's applied in our day and age makes more sense. Now, that becomes problematic if you think about spirituality as this unchanging thing that's, that has always been the same. And the spirituality that I grew up with um, was sincere and genuine and had a lot of beauty and a lot of goodness. But one of the things I struggled with with it is that it pretended that none of that had ever, <laughs> had ever happened, that we, that we have just always had this. And when you take that to prophets, um, that becomes problematic because prophets, are, even in the Hebrew Bible, are pointing out stuff they're trying to make sense of. Often they're trying to make sense of calamity or they're trying to forewarn about calamity coming. And we're not going to get today into kind of like textual collation and editing of texts and all that kind of stuff because that's going to confuse things unnecessarily, but we might talk about that another time. But prophets find themselves in these situations, and let's just take the prophets represented in the text as given for today, as if um, it's a documentary being made about that prophet, and it's, no one's changed the story afterwards. Um, even taking it at that kind of face value, you have prophets pointing out that something's going wrong. Usually it's when everyone knows that something's going wrong. Because the position Israel finds themselves in is an army has invaded us. God's supposed to be protecting us. An army's dragged us off to Babylon. Why has this calamity happened? Well, either it's because God's not good and God's not protecting us anymore, or it's because we've done something wrong. That's their interpretation of that event. They're interpreting the events in their lives and trying to find out what has gone wrong. And whenever Israel feels like life isn't going well and they're not top of the world like God promised they would be, they have to find out the reason why. Why is it? How have we let God down? What is God trying to teach us about where we've gone wrong so that we can get back to the way things are supposed to be? So the prophets come along and they point out these are the threads. If you're asking why you're, there's calamity, here are the threads that have gone wrong. Now, that would be very simple <laughs> if all the prophets agreed with each other, but they don't. You can find ways, if you bend things really carefully, of making it look like they agree with each other, but I would argue, and most Hebrew Bible scholars I uh, read would agree as well that the prophets actually have different answers for why things have gone wrong. So you end up with camps of things. So one group of prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi when Israel have been taken away to Babylon and then get released to rebuild Jerusalem. 
the prophets come along to say, let's make sure we don't make the same mistakes again and get ourselves kicked out of the promised land. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they're there going, you know the problem? Foreign wives. King Solomon took foreign wives and ended up worshipping other deities. If we're going to be faithful to God, we need to get rid of the foreign wives and their kids. This is, um, this is Nehemiah. I just thought I'd add this because it's kind of fun. Um, this is <laughs> Nehemiah 13, talking about how he dealt with the people who have taken foreign wives who are going to destroy the future of Israel and need to be dealt with. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod. You know all about them. You don't. Ammon and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. (laughs) Yeah, so this is a prophet. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair, which kind of sounds quite macho and then like not that macho at all. But anyway, um, in my household, we've learned that pulling people's hair out, my children have taught me, is a very effective um, way of getting a message across. Um, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take the daughters in marriage for, you, for sons for yourself. Was it not marriages like this that King Solomon, uh, caused King Solomon of Israel to sin? And so then Nehemiah and Ezra become big advocates of getting people to separate from their foreign wives and send them and their families off where they would not be cared for. Because that is religious purity. And that is what God demands. And then you have Malachi come along and say, no, 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 no. God's not into divorce. (laughs) Don't be doing that. We're not going to have a discussion about divorce today. But we are going to have a discussion about the fact that these two prophets, these two groups of prophets, have very different ideas of what's going on and what's going wrong and what needs to be tied and retied. And if you think that's complicated, then you throw in a third group of prophets, like Isaiah and Hosea and Micah. And they're like, you think the problem is that you're not meeting cultic purity law enough? No, no, no. The problem is that you aren't feeding and taking care of and providing for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. And so throughout the text, there's this argument between these two sides of prophets. One saying we need to keep the law better. We need to make sure that we don't harvest gray hairs from our beards on, a, on the Sabbath because that's harvesting and that's banned. And the other half going, no, you, you can sacrifice a thousand bulls. God does not care The rivers run with blood of sacrifices. It's not changing anything. Start looking after the vulnerable people in your community because that's what God really cares about. And so the inheritors of this story have to make decisions about what threads need connecting and what actually matters and choose sides. And so in the Christian tradition, we see Jesus turning up 
and choosing sides. Jesus constantly favours the prophets and quotes from the prophets that talk about caring for the vulnerable and caring for the poor and caring for the marginalised. He picks sides. So, I just want to give you a really quick example of some editing that goes on. And we've used this one before, so you might have, you might have seen it. But um, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. Oh, this is um, people working out where to send their wives and children. Yeah. It's, t- it's a tough decision to make sometimes, because which bit of desert's really the best? Um, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance for our God. This is Isaiah, in the prophetic tradition, reading out what his role is and what is happening at this time in Israel. Good news is, God's going to look after the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, set us free, release from darkness of prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and finally take some vengeance (laughs) on those guys who have put us in this place. This is the word of the Lord. This is Jesus. This is very intentionally in the text set up as his So when a king or a Caesar came to power, they would give a pronouncement speech which would set the tone for the rest of their reign. They would say, this is what I am about. This is set up in the text as a pronouncement speech and an inaugural message. Um, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll. So he was given this. Don't worry too much about the exact translations. There's a reason for that. But And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. Scan, 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 scan. Finds this piece here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, fa- the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did Jesus do? He missed the last line. He edited. (laughs) He stopped. Should he have read the next verse, the next line? Absolutely. It's, it's grouped together in the text. Vengeance and violence was one of the very understandable hopes of a crushed people. When you've had your land taken over, when you've been dragged away, where you've had horrible things to ha- happen to you. Vengeance and violence 
as a very understandable response. Needing a God that will commit violence on your behalf if you give it over is a very understandable response. Jesus, later on, weeps over Jerusalem and talks about a day of great terror that will come when women and children will be separated when violence will be committed, when blood will be shed and weeps over Jerusalem and longs for it to take a different path. 40, 50 years later, after Jesus' death, Israel takes up arms against the Roman Empire, decides they don't want to pay taxes anymore, takes up arms against them, and brings the might of the Roman Empire down upon it and is crushed and the temple is destroyed. It's laid flat and people are taken off into slavery and people are killed. And it's a great day of terror for the Jewish people. And here Jesus is saying that vengeance and violence as a part of our tradition, maybe that's not the faithful path. Maybe that's the strand that needs to be cut and taken out. Maybe we need the Spirit of God to show up and proclaim freedom to the poor and take care of the widow and orphan and comfort us when we mourn. But we need to tie I forgot everything I learned in Royal Rangers, which is the Christian equivalent of Scouts. It was never as good as Scouts anyway, so I'm blaming that. Maybe we need to tie something new in there, which will take us on a different path and say, this is still faithful. This is still faithful to what sits at the center. And there will always be argument, there will always be discussion about exactly what faithfulness looks like. There will always be arguments with people pretending <laughs> that religious traditions are this. One of the things that you'll see if you do any kind of looking around about prophets is that you'll be told that prophets are conservatives. Prophets are reformers. And in one sense, that's right, because they are all pointing to earlier threads, saying, this is the thread that matters and this is what we should do with it. But they're not conservatives in the... The argument is used to, <laughs> to, to pretend that prophets are conservatives, and by conservatives we mean people who pretend that the religious tradition has always been the same and nothing has ever changed. Um, I mean, as soon as you go near something like biblical marriage, you can see that that's not true because people who stand for biblical marriage will not let their child, their 13-year-old child, marry a 45-year-old, which was biblical marriage <laughs> in many cases. So either we're going to pretend that everything's always been the same or we're going to do the much harder work and have lots of arguments and sometimes get it wrong 
about what, what actually matters in this tradition that we've inherited, what is actually faithful to the things that sit at the center. And sometimes we're going to have to listen to Sinead O'Connor's sing songs about abuse that we have let happen and face up to it and do things about it and make change. And it will be uncomfortable. Sometimes we're going to have to tell other people who say that they're prophets that we disagree with them. And that's difficult too. But what I don't think we can do is pretend that religious traditions are this. And I think if the text is trying to remind us of anything is that we do need to keep on paying attention and we do need to keep on listening because God does keep on revealing God's self. And there is more to know and there's more to understand. There's more nuance needed. I personally wouldn't opt to be an ancient Hebrew person knowing what I know now. And that is in my tradition and I think there was beautiful things about that at the time. But I think that things have needed to change and evolve from things that made sense at the time into things that fit our time. And sometimes that can be cultural capitulation in bad ways. And sometimes that can be cultural capitulation in ways where we are actually being taught (laughs) new things. And sometimes not by people within our tradition. Um, Some of you know that I've been involved in supporting survivors of um, coercive leadership in churches for the last few years. Um, one, of the, one of the phrases that keeps getting repeated um, is there's no hate like Christian love. There's no hate quite like Christian love. And that phrase can act as a mirror to say, I know you think you are being loving here, but actually it feels a lot like hate. And it could be a chance to reflect on whether you want to double down on that because you think that that's faithfulness or whether maybe something needs adjusting and changing. So that, (laughs) for me, is what prophets are doing now and then. And that doesn't mean that all prophets are right and that doesn't mean that all prophets agree. But I do believe that we need prophets in culture and prophets in religious traditions because I think we need to keep on looking and paying attention. So as we wrap up, you might have lots of even conflicting responses to this as an idea, and that's totally fine. But I just kind of wanted to get a sense of like, what makes you comfortable and uncomfortable and excited and concerned, what makes you want to throw a shoe, what makes you ask curious questions, what questions you have. How does, how does that as a concept sit with you? And you don't have to agree with me. Like I, those of you who know this community well know, you don't have to agree with me. That's okay. How does, it, how does it sit with you? What do you feel about that? What feelings come up?
because my younger self has concerns. Um, I'm realising that I used to have this... I don't read the Bible so much anymore, but I'm realising that I used to read the Bible... I just assumed whenever there was a prophet that they were the voice of God. And I'm realising that I viewed them like magicians, like God told them secrets and they knew the truth, not that they were like interpreting and making sense of what was going around them themselves, perhaps there's some divine inspiration. But like when the prophet went to David to call him out, I think I imagined that God had done like some magic with him and just told him a secret, not... Not that probably everybody do, but nobody was willing to call it out. Like, so I think I viewed the prophets as like these little magicians with a secret ear to God that were 100% the voice of God. So, yeah, this is interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, I relate. Um, two things that come up for me is that like really connect and relate to the prophets who are talking about, you know, the rules aren't important, it's about justice for the poor, which for me is making me go, cool, uh, what are my blind spots and am I listening? Like why, yeah, what prophets do I need to listen to who might be speaking on the other side, um, which is a confronting thought to have. Uh, and then the other thing, and I guess this is inspired by, um, I've been thinking a lot about AI and shit recently, but like, um, yeah, just like this idea of like, as we're catapulting towards um, knowledge and growth and information and all this sort of stuff, like, it's really hard to stop and listen to voices that are going, stop, slow down, you need to change this. And so... Yeah, I'm just conscious that, like, as technology propels us forward, just uh, really feeling the urge to resist the speed of that and slow down, slow down, slow down, so that I can hear whatever the prophetic voices are. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've got two things. One is... When you told us about the line missing on here, I was really relieved because I, I think my first sense when we read it was just, oh, my gosh, what's, what about the, all that violence there? And just to point it out that hmm, maybe, maybe sometimes prophets are speaking from their own point of view rather than, you know, something that God agrees with. Um, and then my other point was I was thinking about how prophets are often, um, like, seem like dissenting voices and sometimes they're just speaking earlier than everybody else so you know it's like the canary in the go- in the mine idea like I suppose I think of examples like Greta Thunberg and but there's people you know way before that pointing out all the problems in in the climate and at the beginning often they seem really extreme and then we end up living through it anyway um, and another example would be you know the women that um that uh, fought for voting for women, you know, they probably seemed absolutely extreme. And now we just, last week, you know, or two weeks ago, whatever, we all walked into the polls and all got to take a vote and we now don't even think about that. So it doesn't feel extreme anymore. So often it's the, there's a time period with it as well. Profits shifting the Overton window, yeah. But yes and, let's not forget all the profits of 
David Koresh, and <laughs> there have been a lot of prophets that have led people down very dark and violent paths too. Like, yeah, how to discern, like how to discern what, who's ahead of their time and who is actually just leading you down a violent dark path. Yeah. Oh, you don't? Sure, okay. Um, is no one else scared or afraid? It was, was like the only person who... <laughs> Stu, thank you. See that hand? Because like this, this, this is what, subtext-wise, I was raised to fear. Like, this is the slippery slope that we were warned about our entire childhood for people who grew up in religious traditions like me of to be terrified of people who pretend that it's not just this. We even had a book of Bible answers, which cleared up any potential contradictions, very convincingly. I mean, now, as an adult, and someone who's done some study, not very convincingly at all, <laughs> at all. But at the time, I think it was like, oh, phew, thank goodness. Like, it's, it's like you didn't really wrestle with it, you're just relieved that someone had an answer so you didn't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. I want to speak to 12-year-old Stu. Well, the thing is that it's, it's all about that. Um, the thing that I think about when I see your court of many strands is that we just don't know where exactly we sit on a particular strand. So we, look, we read all these texts and we have that benefit of hindsight. And for things like slavery, you know, the we just sort of gloss over the fact that like we've sort of had this strand and then actually the Christians were the first ones to figure out actually we should be changing that strand. And it sort of all gets encapsulated in the outer coding so that we don't see all the wires. But for any issue, I think like there are gonna be some strands where we're sitting right at the cutting point and which edge of the cutting point, it was, like all we see is this little bit of strand either direction. And that's terrifying, I think, yeah. And, and we see, even in our current world, there are people saying things that feel really wrong. And you have to say, well, is it possible that actually that there is the strand? That, like, yeah, discernment is hard. Which is why we're going to go back to this, because it makes us feel so much more comfortable. <laughs> like... This effectively is what I, why I clung to this cord for so long. It's because of exactly that. Like, I don't, I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to let God down. I don't want to betray my tradition. I don't want to change something which has always been the same. And as long as you can believe it's always been the same, then this is a really easy, simple, and clear... Like, I feel like that form of spirituality is as much about um, control of terror as it is anything else. And it doesn't even need to be real if it can give you the illusion that you are safe because you have it right, because it's always been the same. And free you from getting it wrong, which we might, then that's a way more comfortable place to sit. Like, 
as someone, again, who works in kind of theological deconstruction and reconstruction, I'm still, I still don't think it's fair to go out of your way to spark a crisis moment for someone's spirituality just for fun. But I think we have to be really careful about understanding the way that religion functions for people. That for lots of people, unless they have, lots of people will find their own religious ruptures anyway. But at best, you find a religious rupture in a place where you can find community that can help and guide and support you through it. And that to actually just throw grenades left, right, and center unthinkingly isn't actually necessarily a kind thing to do to someone whose identity is built and safety, and psychological safety is built around this. Does that make sense? Not that it doesn't ever need to be challenged, because I think it does, but I think the kind of like smarmy, we're progressive theologian people, we know better, so we're just gonna go and like mess stuff up for you because you're old hacks. Like I just don't think that's very kind, yeah. Sorry, a couple of things. Um, I was just thinking in response to that directly. Um, y yeah, just for fun, no, but often people's sense of safety in their unthinking, wanting to believe it's unchanging in one thread is causing harm, and so throw a grenade at that immediately. Um, the other thing I was thinking has vanished from my brain. What was it? Oh, just a reflection on on the, the fear, the terror of getting it wrong. I think that's behind, I, I agree, I think that's behind so much of um, the, the blinkedness to um, diversity of opinion, the, the, I think so much, I guess, fundamentalism is there has to be one right way, it has to be this way, and that terror kind of prevents people from, um, being open to other points of view, being open to flexibility of thinking or, or reconsidering a position. Um, and I think that, seen from a, from a Christian point of view, like if you're, you know, ancient, if you're an ancient Hebrew, that's fair enough because God will blast you if you get the wrong sacrifice. But it doesn't make any sense at all for modern Christians, even though it's, like, massively alive in modern Christianity, because if, if, we, if forgiveness is at the centre of it, if the idea that we're all sinners, it's not about what kind of bells and smells you, you do in your worship, then, like, God can forgive us for getting it wrong, and the only thing that, like, the only um, kind of cardinal sin is not sort of being open to um, the love that Jesus kind of modelled, um, and... Yeah, it's just that, that forgiveness should be freeing us from this, that idea of, from, yeah, um, I've lost the thread, but no, that's good. That's really beautiful. maybe yeah. you can put that in actual words. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's, the, I mean, there's, the, there's the spirit element. Like, I, a fr good friend of mine who's one of my favorite Pentecostal theologians says, like, for those of us who come from Pentecostalism, which at some point, for reasons about getting into universities, um, married evangelicalism, um, <laughs> became incredibly fundamentalist. And his argument is that Pentecostals should be the best ethicists because they have 
in expectation that the Spirit leads them as they, as they move, and that divine improvisation is always happening in amongst. Um, yeah, there's another comment off to the side. I just want to make about a sumptive worldview. One of, the, one of the things that we don't often acknowledge is that the people in the Bible who are responding to their context are responding from an assumptive worldview that we may no longer be able to adopt. Like one of my one of the interesting kind of conversations around Trinitarian theology is Trinitarian theology, this is getting super nerdy, so zone out if you like, um, is based around views of spirit being a particular kind of matter um, in ways that as people who have modern science, we don't think about the world in that way anymore. Yet, Trinitarian theology is still the ultimate marker of fidelity, but to do so, you have to adopt this pneumatology and the sense of spirit that is from a few centuries ago, like, and that carries in a lot of areas. So, again, biblical marriage, it has an assumptive worldview with it that I would argue to embrace that kind of conservatism around marriage, you have to embrace the entire worldview for that to make sense. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop that rabbit hole right there because it'll take way too much explaining, but some of you might find that interesting and others have already glazed over. Good. Yeah, this is probably a bit of a, a tech nerd type thing, but that black cab you're holding an XLR, it's actually a, a shielded cable design, so it's going to get no interference from any other thing. So you can lay it with other cables and it won't be interrupted. The massive cables you get there, it might get interrupted by another thing and kind of you might get a signal from one strand to another. So I think that was, yeah, kind of really came out to me. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you. Okay, cool. Have we missed everyone up enough this morning? That's great. Uh, good. I would like to hear from more of your 12-year-old selves if this causes you the same kind of anxiety it um, does and has me. So, yeah, that'd be great. Get them to write a, to boot up their um, Windows 95 and send me a um, AOL message. That'd be great. Cool. Um, we're going to have communion now. One of the things I love about our tradition is that this thing here, in all sorts of different shapes and ways, is a practice that we still carry on. Um, it's a table of hospitality. It's a table of shared love. It's a table of equality. It's a table of humility. It's a table of empowerment as a table that says, in Jesus we see the image of God, and in that self-sacrificing, brave, incredibly kind, inclusive love, we find the divine. Um, yeah, and that's a thread that I would like to keep going. So I'm not going to kick the table over this morning in a prophetic act and pull people's hair instead. Um, I'd love to invite you, if you want to take part in communion this morning, to gather around and grab a little bit of cracker and some grape juice, and then we all wait together until everyone who wants some has some as a symbol of equality. Um, if you don't want to take part, you can just stand in the circle or just eat and drink and just pretend. Whatever makes you comfortable is totally fine. So, yeah.
Jesus, I think of you in Gethsemane, agonizing, wondering if you have got it right and whether this is the right move, where people are whispering for you to take up the sword and start a revolution and kick Rome out, whether shedding blood is the right way or whether to go meekly to your execution. We sit with the frailty and the bravery and the faithfulness of that as you try to interpret your sense of the divine and carry faithfulness to your tradition hand in hand. And you gave your life. And I ask that you help us to be brave about what threads we pick up and what threads we put down, what threads we repair. Continue to lead us and trust in your goodness and your kindness and your love. Let's eat and drink together.